Please turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be diving into Romans chapter 9 this morning. Um, Before we get started, I I do want to say thanks for praying for our trip. It was an absolutely fantastic trip. I thought I'd give you just a little, uh, we're not going to spend the whole morning, but a quick kind of visual overview of uh, what we did. We started our, our trip actually out on the Mediterranean. Uh, the first night, we, we actually went to Joppa. This is not Joppa, this is Caesarea. We went to Joppa and saw the home of Simon the Tanner, and nobody really remembers that because there was jet lag. We're just trying to keep people moving. The next morning, though, we got up and we went to Caesarea. This is a harbor built by Herod the Great. It's the first man-made harbor in the world, and uh, he used, for the footings, he used concrete, which was invented by the Romans, interestingly, uh, from the coastland and from Caesarea, we went up to Mount Carmel. We saw where Elijah battled the prophets of Baal and uh, defeated all of them. And from the top of Mount Carmel, we looked down on the Jezreel Valley. That's Har Megiddo or the Hill of Megiddo off on the right uh, from, from which we get Armageddon. So as we look out onto the plain of Jezreel, this is where it'll happen. This is uh, the battlefield for the Battle of Armageddon. Then we traveled uh, further north up into the Galilee. We walked along the Sea of Galilee, uh, walked where Jesus walked. And um, this is actually a place called Peter's Primacy where Jesus uh, spoke with Peter and said, Peter, uh, tend my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. Went further north up to the uh, city of Dan. And actually before the tribe of Dan moved to the north, uh, there was a city there, and we saw at this city a variety of things, but one of them that, that has always been just most impressive to me is this mud brick gate. It's 4,000 years old. Uh, this is a gate that existed in the time of Abraham. Uh, Abraham probably walked through this mud brick gate, 4,000 years old. Um, we don't let the kids touch it. There's a gate right there, yeah, keeping you out of the gate. Uh, we drove further north and saw Mount Hermon. Up in the north, it was uh, during the Feast of Purim while we were there. And so a lot of the Israel, uh, Israeli families were driving their families up to get up. Because in the north, in the Galilee, and up at Mount Hermon, it's really the most beautiful area of the country. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of traffic, actually. <laughs> a lot of folks driving up to that region. Uh, again, we traveled a little further north and off to the east. We went up into the Golan Heights. And we looked from the Golan Heights down into Syria. Okay, further off that direction is Damascus, and you can see them back this way is Washington, D.C. Never been up there onto the Golan Heights uh, that were, uh, was captured by Israel in the war uh, back in 67. Uh, then we went down to uh, a city called Beit She'an, later called Scythopolis, very old city, and we sat on some old stuff there in the <laughs> city of Scythopolis. We kept traveling south along the Jordan, and we stopped at a place on the Jordan, and several of us were baptized. That's Terry Helsher. He got baptized there. And uh, yeah, the water was really cold. The benefit was, for me, as the baptizer, I found uh, waiters in, in the uh, bathroom. And so I didn't ask permission. Figured I could ask forgiveness later. And I snagged the waiters because the water was really cold. You can see it on Terry's face there. But that was a really special time, uh, being baptized in the Jordan. I got to baptize both my kids uh, and also both my parents. So that was really, really special. Kept going further south along the Jordan, and we stopped at Qumran. This is uh, cave number four, where the uh, largest uh, repository of scrolls was found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, one of the most significant archaeological finds in all of history. And what is, to me, I I love about this site is uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove to us the uh, reliability of the text of the Old Testament. See, the oldest 
manuscripts we had prior to this discovery were from the Middle Ages. Now, when we found these scrolls, they were dated from 200 to 300 B.C., so they pushed our, our, scroll, our manuscript evidence back over 1,000 years, and there was almost complete correspondence in the text between what the uh, folks here, the Essenes, copied at the Dead Sea and what the Masoretes did in the Middle Ages. So this is an enormously significant site, um, and it was fun to stop and... and uh, be reminded of that history and God's faithfulness. We uh, got to stop and float in the Dead Sea. Um, it's really dead. It's really salty. You float in that area. Uh, you wouldn't want to swim there and you don't want to splash around because it burns. We also stopped at Freshwater in Engedi. This is where David hid from Saul. And um, Pat and I got a picture of ourselves there at Engedi. On the way up from Jericho, we bought a camel. Yeah, we rode a camel. They're really smelly and stinky, but that was fun. And then we went up to Jerusalem and spent several days in uh, Jerusalem. You could spend a lifetime. There's so much to see in Jerusalem. We're sad to have to cut that short. I'll give you some more slides and uh, some more thoughts from what I learned there later. But um, one of the things that struck me, it's a profound observation, but um, there aren't very many Christians in Israel. There aren't very many Christians in Israel. There are a lot of churches. There are a lot of shrines that commemorate events from Jesus' life. But there aren't very many Christians, actual Christians. There are uh, 5.8 million Jews, about 2 million Arabs, but about 5.8 million Jews. And of those Jews, there are only about 10, maybe 15,000 Christians. Among all of those Jews that are living in the land. 10 to 15,000. Uh, they, they know one another. It was interesting to me. I was talking to our guide. She's a Jewish Christian. Her uh, grandparents were among the first Jewish Christians to emigrate to Israel. She lives on the only Christian kibbutz in the whole country. And we somehow got off talking about worship music. And she said, you know, in Israel, we don't bother to copyright worship music. Okay, the stuff that's written in Hebrew. She said, because there's, there's no one to sell it to. So we just, we just share it. We just give it away. There's no market for it whatsoever. Because there's only a few Jewish Christians. Now, that may not strike you as surprising, but if you think back about the origin of the church, the church was entirely Jewish when it started, right? On the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 that believed that Jesus was Messiah were almost entirely Jewish, or they were proselytes who had, who had begun the conversion process to Judaism, so the whole church was Jewish. However, as the church began to grow, you had fewer and fewer and fewer Jews responding and more and more and more Gentiles responding. And that was troubling for the Jew. Remember Paul said the gospel's for the Jew first and then also for the Gentile. And the Jew looks around at his church and he says, not a lot of my kind of people here. Has God broken his promise? If the gospel's for us first, why aren't more of us responding? Why is it more and more and more of a Gentile thing? Why do I feel more and more like an outsider? If Jesus was a Jew and he came for the Jews first and then secondarily, in a sense, for the Gentiles, it causes me to wonder. causes me to wonder. I want to take you back for a moment. We've been off of Romans for a couple weeks. To Romans chapter 8. We ended Romans 8 with a series of promises. God has spoken through chapter 6 through 8 and said, 
I will transform you as you walk with me. As you become preoccupied with the things of the Spirit, I will mold you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I will transform you. I will use everything for your good because as you walk, you will also suffer because Jesus suffered, but I'm going to use even that suffering to produce good in your life. I'm not calling evil good, but I'm saying I can take evil and suffering and create good in your life from that. It's a promise. I will finish the work that I've started. Having been justified because you believed in Jesus, you're declared righteous, your debt's removed, you possess eternal life. God, through Paul, says, I will complete the process and you will be glorified. God will not fail. And then finally, I will allow nothing to separate us. You wonder when you're suffering, has God forgotten about me? But no, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No tribulation, no trial, no suffering, no persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, nothing. Paul says, nor any other created thing, nothing will separate you. But if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you say to yourself, but wait a second. It appears that all of my people are separated from God. So has God been unfaithful? Now for the Apostle Paul, uh, this was not simply a theological issue. It was a personal issue because he was Jewish. Read with me chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, really, I mean it, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Paul says, I ache for them. This is personal. Not that I can give up my salvation, but gosh, I want my, my kinsmen, my, my countrymen to know Christ so badly that I feel it so passionately, I, I, I want to say I would give up my salvation if I could so that more people could have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But, Paul says, We can't question God's faithfulness. And what he's going to do in chapter 9, 10, and 11 is answer this question. Has God been unfaithful to Israel? Has God been unfaithful to Israel? Now, we're only going to cover chapter 9. I say only. Chapter 9 is dense. This chapter is packed. Uh, Buckle up. You know, we're really going to get into some heavy theology today. But chapter 9 is not the whole answer to this question. He goes on and he answers it in chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 9, his answer is essentially this. No, God has not been unfaithful. God always acts consistently with his promises and with his character. Chapter 10, he's going to drive home the point that Israel, in fact, is responsible for their own situation of being separated from God. Chapter 11, he's going to say, well, if you look at the promises of God as they actually are, God will fulfill them. Israel will be in a place of blessing from God. Okay? So he starts his answer in chapter 9, verse 6, where he says this, But it is not as though the word of God or the promise of God, that is, has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay, so let's unpack Paul's answer together. Has God been unfaithful to Israel? No. 
Paul's going to say, first, God has always acted consistently with his promise. First, it was Isaac that was chosen, not Ishmael. What he's going to say is, God never promised that all of ethnic Israel would be saved. Okay? That wasn't part of God's initial promise. So, chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That's going to be the thesis statement for chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. Paul's going to prove that that is true. Why? They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants or seed, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, that is, mere physical descent who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. In other words, Paul says it was Isaac who was chosen, not Ishmael. Uh, Abraham had another son, Ishmael, who was actually his firstborn son, but that son came through Hagar, came through very natural means. Hagar was a young woman, it's natural for her to get pregnant. Sarah was a miracle. She's 90 years old, it was the fulfillment of a promise. But Abraham had another son. He had Ishmael. Actually, Abraham had uh, six more sons. He had eight sons total. He had a concubine, Keturah, who uh, gave him six more sons. One of those was Midian. Midianites gave problems to the Jews later on. And one of the things we observed as we were walking through Israel is every time the men weren't doing what the men were supposed to be doing, so to speak, it gave the nation problems. (laughs) You know, that's just bonus application point, right? So, Paul's point is this, it's not blood descent that is the basis of the promise. Otherwise, all eight of Abraham's sons would have been chosen. But no, he says, I chose Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise. And he goes on, he says, furthermore, it was Jacob who was chosen and not Esau. Verse 10, not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So, backing up. Abraham and Sarah had one son. So maybe it's not from the father, but maybe through the mother. Well, no. Isaac just had one wife. His wife was Rebecca. And they actually had twins. So exactly the same bloodline, father and mother, the same. They're actually twins. But God didn't choose both of the twins. Not only this, there was Rebecca also when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born... And had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So, verse 11, it's not based upon merit, right? It's not based upon merit. The promise is based upon God's free choice. Esau was not a great character, was he? Uh, Esau was a really sensual man. Uh, He got so hungry one day that he chose to give up his entire birthright just for one meal. Really sensual man. So we could argue, well, Esau wasn't chosen because he wasn't that great of a guy. Well, Jacob wasn't really that great of a guy either, was he? His name meant deceiver. That was his primary character quality, deceit. Okay, That's Jacob. So Paul says, God chose them while they were still in the womb, and neither was, in fact, deserving. Before they had done good or evil, and they both actually did evil, and neither was deserving, God said, I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose, and I'm not even going to choose based upon birthright. Ishmael was born first. Esau was born first. I'm going to choose the younger, 
and the older will serve the younger. It's going to be so entirely based upon my choice, not upon what the person does. So he drives it home and he says, verse 13, just as I have written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God had bad feelings toward Esau. It's a statement of choice. Jacob will be the line through which I will extend blessing to all peoples. In fact, we discover that Esau was also blessed in a sense. Esau knew about the Lord. Esau became a, a kingdom in a sense long before Israel became a kingdom. Esau's line multiplied. They became the Edomites. The Edomites eventually moved into the southern part of Israel And according to some accounts, they were forcibly converted to Judaism. And from the Edomites came King Herod, who ruled over the Jews. You you see some form of blessing even happening happening to the descendants of Esau. His point here in Romans 9 is that Jacob will be the line through which the one who God has chosen to extend his blessing or his promises to all people. So, the Jew walks into the church. He says, I don't see too many people that look like me. I see a lot of people who are Gentiles, not Jews. Does that mean that God has broken his promise to my people? Paul says no, because God didn't promise that all of your race would be children of promise. But rather it would be based upon my choice. That's the doctrine of election. That's the doctrine of election. And guess what? We're not the first people to struggle with this. We're not the first people to say, Wow, if it's all based on God's choice, that just doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't God choose based on something in us? Or shouldn't it both be God's choice and something that we deserve? We're not the first ones to wrestle with the justice or the fairness of this concept. Read with me verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? (laughs) College students. This is the question I get asked more than any other. And I just want to let you know, people ask Paul the same question. Okay? If election is true, does that mean that God is in fact unjust? Is the God who elects unjust? Uh, Let me just say at this point that um, the Bible is very balanced in its approach. The Bible teaches that God chooses. And that God has a right to choose because he is the creator of all. And he's God. The Bible teaches that extremely clearly. It's here in in Romans 9. It's also very clear in Ephesians chapter 1. And you really see the concept threaded throughout the Bible. It also teaches that mankind is responsible to respond to God. It teaches both of them side by side. And you know what? It never puts them together. So if you come up to me and say, you know, I figured out how to reconcile them. I'm saying, no, you didn't. You don't know. Nobody knows. I don't know. Paul didn't know. Paul didn't know. Paul taught human responsibility and he taught election. In chapter 10, we're really going to see human responsibility coming up really strong. Okay. Chapter 11, he doesn't put the two together. He ends chapter 11, and this is where we're going to end as well. He ends it with worship. He ends by saying, oh, the depths of the wisdom of the knowledge of God How absolutely unfathomable are his ways. Now, I promise you, Paul is a better theologian than John Calvin or Jacob Arminius, and he didn't get it. 
right? Okay. It was hidden in the mystery of God, but he taught both without attempting to reconcile them. Let me give you one illustration from the book of Acts. This is Peter's sermon. He says, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that's sovereignty, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's human responsibility. And then Peter just moves on with the sermon. He leaves us completely unsatisfied with our theological curiosities. So he doesn't reconcile them. I will say, though, in Romans 9, Paul does answer their specific question, which is, is the God who elects unjust? And he's going to give his answer in three parts. Okay? First, no, God is not unjust because God, in fact, has always been faithful to Israel. Okay? Read with me in chapter 9, verse 14. What should we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, whenever you see Paul quote an Old Testament passage, go back and read it. He doesn't just grab passages randomly out of the Old Testament. This comes from Exodus chapter 32 through 34. Okay? This concept of God having mercy appears several times. That's where he's quoting from. The context is, is this. Moses has received the Ten Commandments. He's gone back up onto the mountain to get them engraved in stone. While he's back on the mountain, what does Israel do? Oh, gosh, Moses has been gone a long time. He must have died. Aaron, would you make us a god that we can worship? So Aaron says, all right, well, bring me some gold. And he puts the gold in the fire. And you know his later justification. I just put it in the fire. Now it came a calf. I don't know what happened. Well... They're worshiping and they're dancing and they're basically having a drunken orgy. Moses is up on the mountain and God tells him, he says, you know, your people, Moses, they've abandoned me. They're already committing idolatry. They're already breaking this first commandment that they promised they would obey. So step aside, Moses, and I'm going to destroy them and I'll start over with you. They are worthy of destruction because they said they would keep the covenant and they've immediately broken the covenant. Therefore, they are worthy of destruction. Let me destroy them right now. And Moses says, please, God, don't destroy them. Have mercy. Yes, your people are stubborn and obstinate, but have mercy on them, God. Please don't destroy them. Otherwise, the nations will hear that you rescued them from Egypt, but you couldn't bring them in the promised land. Instead, you destroyed them. You just took them into the wilderness to destroy them. God, have mercy according to your great character. God says, all right, I'll have mercy on them. Moses, I will not destroy them, but I'm not going with you into the promised land. I don't want to be with you. Moses says, God, please have mercy because if you don't go with us, that's the only thing that makes us distinct and set apart as a people that we worship the one true God. God, have mercy and go with us. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will go with you. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And Moses says, God, please reveal your character to me. He says, I'll reveal my character. The Lord, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is who I am. So Paul quotes that passage to the Jew who's wondering, is God faithful? And he's making this point. 
Israel wouldn't exist if God were unfaithful. Israel would have gotten destroyed before they ever got started, before they ever once made it into the promised land, if God were unfaithful. God, in fact, is true to his character and he's merciful. He shows them mercy and they're not destroyed. Now, he goes on and he makes a second point. Israel would still be stuck in Egypt also if God were unfaithful. Read with me chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. God says, I raised up this ruler and through this ruler I delivered you. You would still be in Egypt if I hadn't performed my miraculous powers in the midst of Egypt and rescued you. And how did I do it? Well, I took this ruler and I hardened his heart. If you go back and you read the account in Exodus, what you discover is uh, 17 times it talks about Pharaoh's hard heart. 17 times. Three different verbs are used to talk about Pharaoh's hardness of heart. Nine times it's very clear that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The other times it's either Pharaoh hardening his own heart or you can't tell who's hardening his heart, God or Pharaoh. But the point is that God takes Pharaoh, who already is a hard-hearted man, And he's a ruler, and because he's the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth, God moves him consistently with his own character, and through that movement, he delivers the nation of Israel. And if God had not moved on their behalf through Pharaoh, they would still be in Egypt. Now, R.C. Sproul made this observation. He said, Pharaoh was already wicked. Pharaoh already had an evil heart, out of which came evil continually. Pharaoh delighted in doing evil. God does not cause men to sin, nor does he make them bad. Rather, he simply lets them harden themselves as a punishment for their wickedness. And I would note, uh, R.C. Sproul is a strong Calvinist, strongly reformed, but he's making the observation that God isn't, in a sense, going against Pharaoh's will. God is operating consistently with Pharaoh's will. God is hardening Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is hardening himself. And the point is this. God uses peoples and he uses nations to show his mercy. The point of Romans 9 is not simply about the sovereignty of God. Romans 9 is about the faithfulness of God to his promises and to his character. And so, in this case, God used Pharaoh to deliver his people and to show mercy. And others received mercy because of Pharaoh's hardened heart. You know, we don't know what happened to Pharaoh later on. We do know that there were some Egyptians who saw this and they said, we want to be with that God, and they left with Israel. We know that Rahab the harlot heard what God did to Pharaoh, and she said, I'll hide you spies because your God is greater than all. And she believed. We know the Gibeonites in the land, when Joshua brought the people in, heard about what God had done through Pharaoh. And so mercy was extended to them, to Rahab, to other Egyptians. And the Jew hears this argument and says, you know, that worked out really well for us. (laughs) didn't it? It worked out really well that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it didn't work out necessarily very well for Pharaoh. So is God, in fact, unjust because he manipulated Pharaoh? Okay. The objector pushes the argument a little bit further, and so Paul pushes his own defense of God's faithfulness a little bit further. And he says this, God has authority over the nations. Read with me chapter 9, verse 19. Uh, You will say to me then, 
why does he still find fault? Okay? So if God has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires, why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, again, Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage. And you can't understand what he's saying unless you understand the passage. So I need you to turn with me back to Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 1. And you can write in your margin in Romans 9, Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12. The potter and the clay. Why does Paul talk about the potter and the clay? Well, Jeremiah is the first prophet. It's actually the second. Isaiah talked about it too, but Jeremiah develops this, this theme of the potter and the clay. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. And Jeremiah's wondering, well, what what does that mean? Okay, I've seen lots of potters make pots before. What's that mean? Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom, to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promise to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O turn back each of you from his evil way, And reform your ways and your deeds. See, when God sent a prophet to you, it was both bad and good. Because he'd deliver a message which was, repent or you will be destroyed. The good part of that is you can repent. So if you saw a prophet, there was still hope. You weren't dead yet. If God wanted to destroy you, he'd just destroy you. God wants you to repent, he sends you a prophet. So what does he say? Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you, devising a plan against you. Turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say to me, it's hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. (laughs) What's the point of the potter and the clay? It's not simply that God is deterministic in his sovereignty and he takes good people and makes them bad or bad people and makes them worse, right? That's not the point. It's that God has the authority to discipline and judge people. That's the point of the potter and the clay. So back in Romans chapter 9, they may be objecting and saying, it seems that we're outside of the blessings of God. Is God at fault because no one resists his will? And Paul says, no, potter and the clay, you're responsible. You're responsible because you're behaving just like the people in Jeremiah chapter 18 uh, who, say to the, who say to the Lord, 
we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. And that's what he's going to develop in Romans chapter 10. So what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9 is, yes, God has absolute authority over all nations. Let me illustrate. Psalm chapter 103, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty, or literally his kingship, his kingdom, rules over all. God is in the heavens and he is in charge. His sovereignty rules over all. But what does he do with that sovereignty? How does he exercise that sovereignty? Well, he exercises it in such a way that he's longing to show mercy. That's why he sends prophets to people. And he says, if you have become fashioned as a vessel for dishonor, but you repent, I'm the sovereign and I can refashion you. And I have authority to do so. And so God is moving through Pharaoh, through uh, Edomites, through Israel, through Gentiles. He's moving through all different peoples. Why? So that he can show mercy, so he can extend his mercy. That's the potter and the clay. Now, how does he exercise the authority? He exercises it consistently with the will of the people. So is it God's Sovereignty or man's responsibility, potter in the clay shows that it's both. Okay, it's both. He exercises that authority consistently with the will of people. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Esau was an evil man who gave up his birthright. But wasn't it God's will already that the birthright would go to Jacob? Yes, it was. And so God used Esau's hardened heart to accomplish his own will through Jacob, who is also a deceiver. (laughs) Because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign. Okay, It's a bit of a mind-bender, isn't it? It's a bit of a mind-bender. But we often think of the potter and the clay just in terms of the sovereignty of God, but what he's teaching with that illustration is, in fact, it's both. Third, God isn't fair, but he is merciful. Okay, God isn't fair, but he is, in fact, merciful. Read with me chapter 9, Romans, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Who is he talking about here? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I want you to notice a couple of things. First, who prepared them for destruction? Well, the word in verse 22 and the word for prepared in verse 23 aren't the same word. So it's it's unfortunate that New American Standard translates them the same. They're not the same word. And it doesn't say in verse 22 who prepared them. Did God prepare them? It's actually in middle voice, so it could read, they prepared themselves. And Paul leaves it ambiguous. Why? I think it's intentional. Because his point is simply this. They are ripe for destruction. And destruction is appropriate for them. And God is enduring them with much patience. Who's he talking about? Well, in the context, he's just used Esau as an illustration. He's used Pharaoh as an illustration. And in chapter 10, he's going to argue Israel as an illustration. They are ripe 
for destruction. They are prepared for destruction, but God is putting up with them and he's patient with them and he's patient and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. Why is God so patient? If you look throughout the whole scope of biblical history, God rarely executes judgment immediately on sin. Rarely. Almost always he waits and he waits and he sends prophets and he sends, he sends warning after warning after warning. That is God's typical plan. Every once in a while he executes judgment immediately to make a point. But normally he's patient and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. Why? Verse 23. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. God has been patient in his sovereignty, even toward those who are fighting against his will. Why? So that he can show mercy to more. I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. As you're turning there, I would like for the folks who are going to be serving us communion this morning, if you would go back and get ready to, to serve us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Fairness implies um, that everyone gets exactly the same treatment. And there's something in us as Americans, you know, it's written into our constitution. We like, we like fair. We like the concept of fair. But God's not fair. We don't all get treated exactly the same, do we? Some are born rich. Some are born poor. Some are born in this century. Some are born in a century where there's no antibiotics. Some are born black and white. Some are born Asian. Some are born in families that are whole. And some are born in families that are broken. We're not, we're not all treated exactly the same. In, in that sense, God isn't, isn't fair. We don't all have the same treatment. But we don't, we don't need fair from God. We need mercy from God. When I'm driving down the road and I see somebody speeding, they whip by me and they're driving crazy and dangerous, they're speeding, this part of my flesh will probably never be removed, but the first thing I think is I hope that they are seen by a police officer. I look for the cop. I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm emotionally. I, I'm into that. I really I want that to happen. I'm longing for that to happen. Now, when I'm speeding and I pass a police officer, I am even more passionately hopeful that he does not see me, right? Because what I want is I want justice for him, mercy for me, right? Go back and read Jonah. That is the point of Jonah. Jonah wants mercy, He's sitting out in the hot sun in the desert and a plant comes up and he's so happy about the plant. Mercy for himself. Then the plant withers and dies and he's angry about the plant. But he doesn't care if God destroys hundreds of thousands of people. He doesn't care. And God's trying to shake him and rattle him and say, Jonah, you're missing the point. I want to extend mercy. That's why I send prophets. I send, yes, you announce judgment Conditionally, because if they repent, I want to extend mercy, Jonah. You don't care about the right things. We, we, we don't need fairness. Because if we all got equal treatment and we all got what we deserve, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, in fact, we are all born as vessels of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Left to our own, all of humanity would run quickly away from God and toward hell. But God in his mercy is patient with judgment and discipline so that he can extend mercy 
to more and more and more people. And what you discover in the Bible is that it's both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And no one ends up in hell because they're non-elect. John chapter 3 verses 16 through 18 tells us God loves the whole world. Christ died to pay the sins for the whole world. But some choose to disbelieve. That's human responsibility. And God elects. And God right now is merciful and patient because he wants to extend mercy to more. Read in the chapter 3, 2 Peter verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Romans chapter 9 is about the character of God. Paul is defending the character of God. And he's saying simply this. God is always faithful to his promises. He is always faithful to his character. Always. Now for us, that should bring us incredible comfort. We can trust the promises of God always. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, trust God. He will always be faithful to you. If you have eternal life, you will always have it. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, I encourage you this morning, believe that Jesus died for your sins. When you do that, you have a guarantee of eternal life. I think this passage should also make us very humble before the Lord. Because he chooses us not based upon anything in us. It's not, it's not deserved. And yet he has extended his mercy to us. I think it should also cause us to respond in mercy toward others who don't yet know him. As we close, we're going to have an opportunity here just to reflect upon the faithfulness of God. Um, if the uh, servers would come forward and service the elements, um, we're going to share communion. As we do so, I'd like for you to take a few moments and just quietly reflect upon God's demonstration of his faithfulness to his promises by sending his son Jesus to remove the debt of our sins. So let's take the elements, uh, receive them, and then let's, let's wait and hold them. We'll take the bread and the cup together once everyone has been served. Before we uh, take the elements, let's take a few moments quietly in prayer. Ask the Lord to search your heart for any uh, sin that may be unconfessed. Uh, anything that we need to uh, ask forgiveness for. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it in front of his disciples and he said, this bread is my body, my body broken for you, broken because of your sin. Let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, uh, my blood that is poured out as a payment for your sin. Let's take the cup together. Father, I thank you that you have demonstrated your faithfulness to your promises, to your character throughout all of human history, and that you demonstrated it so clearly and powerfully by giving us your son, Jesus Christ. According to the faithful mercies that were promised through Abraham and through David, to send a Messiah, to send a Redeemer, to take away our sin and our debt, to remove the alienation, the separation we experience because of our sin. And I thank you, Father, that we can know with confidence that once that separation has been removed, 
that we belong to you forever. We thank you again for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you, Father, for an opportunity just to to stop and to think and to meditate upon your word. I thank you, Father, for this profound passage in Romans chapter 9. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you continue to give us wisdom and insight through your word into who you are. I pray, Father, we would worship you as you are. I thank you, Father, for your sovereignty, the comfort that that brings to us, that you are always in control and that you are always faithful. I thank you, Father, we know that we can trust you to keep your promises. Thank you for the manifestation of that in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.